Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. All right, if you need a Bible, would you wave at one of our ushers, and they'd be happy to pass one to you. If you happen to have forgotten yours this morning, we put the scripture on the screen as well, but I'd love for you to have your own copy of God's Word and be able to look at it. Or you can turn on your Bible if you have an electronic one. Um, and you do that. Um, it has the same words. It's not real, but it has the same words. All right. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just, I'm old fashioned. I just like real pages. All right. I'm just that way. I'm a dinosaur. I know it. Okay. Um, turn with me over to John chapter 20. What really happened? on resurrection morning what really happened sometimes we see something we become very familiar with it but we totally miss what it means I was heard a story this week it made me smile and I think it illustrates this point little boy was struggling in math he could not do math and he was failing at it his mom tried everything she knew to help him with math try to motivate him, and nothing worked. She tried rewards, she tried punishment, she tried everything, nothing worked. He was not motivated at all, and he was failing. Finally, in desperation, she actually changed schools and sent him to a parochial school, a Catholic school. And the first day home from school, the little boy walks in and immediately puts down his stuff from school, goes upstairs, gets out his math, and spends the next several hours studying his math. Well, she's shocked, all right? But also pleased. I mean, this is what she wanted. The next day, same thing. This, this happens over and over again. Finally, at the end of the semester, he comes in, hands his mother his report card, and walks upstairs and continues what he's been doing all along, immediately starts studying, and she thinks, oh, no. After all of that, he still failed math. She opens up the report card, and she looks and realizes he has an A in math. And she's surprised and happy and, 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 and questioning, too, what's, what has motivated this change in him? So she goes up and she asks him. She goes, what is it that has made the change? Is it, are the nuns super strict? Or is it the teacher is more creative in, in presenting math? Um, I mean, is he like Brian C. Slack? Is he just really great at doing this? Um, I, I wanted to give that to Brian. Um, just that encouragement because his wife is now going back to teaching and he won't be the best C-slack at the school anymore. So, <laughs> all right. So I wanted to give him that encouragement. All right. Um, and he's not even in here to receive it, is he? All right. <sighs> we'll tell him. All right. All right. Don't <clears throat> put it on Facebook. Thank you. Um, all right. So anyway, back to my story. Uh, she couldn't figure it out. And finally he looked up at her and he said, mom, the first day when I went to this new school and I saw that man nailed to the plus sign, I knew they were serious about math. <clears throat> we can see something and totally miss its meaning. Totally miss its meaning. I think we do that sometimes with the resurrection. I think we see it, but we miss its meaning. Today, we're going to talk about what really happened. I'm going to share some stuff with you that you already know. I'm going to share some things with you that may mess up some of what you know. 
But I hope before it's all said and done this morning, the Lord for all of us will cause us to see what really happened on Resurrection Sunday. John chapter 20. We're going to be in several different places, but we're going to start here in John. If you look in John 20, in the, the very first verse, which is not where we're going to start, we're actually going to start in verse 11, but the first verse says that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb before daylight on that Sunday morning. Before the sun came up, she was there, and when she got there, the stone had been rolled away, and she realized that something had happened, and she's all distraught, and so she runs to the disciples where they're staying, and she tells them, the stone's rolled away, and Jesus is missing. And so Peter and John take off running. John gets there first. He kind of looks inside and sees Jesus isn't there. Peter gets there and just barges right on in, and it says that the, the, the linen cloth that Jesus was wrapped in was laying there, and the napkin that had been around his face was folded and laying in a different location. But Jesus isn't there. And then it says that John and Peter go back to where they're staying. But Mary doesn't. Mary stays there at the tomb. That's where we're going to pick up at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into, into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. This is very important. This is significant. This is a picture of an Old Testament type. If you go back to Exodus chapter 25, and you can just jot it down. You don't have to turn there right now. But Exodus 25 tells us about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the seat of atonement over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And when they fashioned the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, they put two cherub, two angelic beings facing each other on either end of the, of the Ark of the Covenant, of the mercy seat. Because this is the place where God said, I'm going to meet you. And this is where I am going to make restitution for you. And so what we have here are these two angels sitting at the head and the foot of where Jesus was. That picture all the way back to Exodus 25. He goes on and it says, the angel, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus lay, one at the head, one at the foot. Verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have take, laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but this is fascinating to me. Mary has been with Jesus for two and a half years, but she does not recognize him. Why? We don't have time to go into all that this morning, all right? So it goes on. Sir, if you, thinking he's the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her one word, her name. By the way, this passage confirms something that I believe, that the most significant word in any language is a person's own name. There's something about our name, and when Jesus says your name, you know it's him. You know it. Immediately, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me or stop clinging. Stop touching me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. That's very important. Don't miss this because we're going to tie all this together. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. 
Notice he's very specific. Tell them, I'm ascending to my, not just my father, my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that, and that he had said these things to her. Now, it's very significant. We're going to turn over, we're going to come back to John 20, but right now I want you to go to John 14 with me. All right, turn back just a few pages to John chapter 14. Now, in John 20, something very significant. Jesus tells Mary, and Mary is the only one he appears to before this all takes place, before he comes back later in the evening. Mary is the only one, the only one he talks to. And he says, tell my disciples, I have not yet, stop touching me, I have not yet ascended my father, but go tell my disciples, go tell my apostles that I am ascending to my father and to their father, to my God and to their God. Now look with me at John chapter 14. Now I'm going to mess up, I may mess up your understanding of John 14. We often take and interpret John 14 to be talking about what we call the second coming, which is a man-made term, but when Christ returns at the end of the age and he takes his bride, he takes the church. I do not believe that that is the interpretation of John 14. I believe it's an application of John 14, but not the interpretation. You understand the difference? All scripture has one interpretation based on, its, based on the context, based on who Jesus was talking to, what he said, and why he said it. So it has one interpretation. But scripture can have many applications. The scripture tells us that we should not covet. Okay, That means I shouldn't desire something that doesn't belong to me. All right, that's the interpretation of that. But I can covet someone's house. I can covet their job. I could covet their wife. I could covet their, chi- their children. I can covet their, their possession. There's many applications, but only one interpretation. You understand what I'm saying? In John 14, I believe the interpretation, for me at least, I had it wrong for a long time. He's not talking about when Jesus comes back at the end of the age. And I'll show you why I believe that. As a matter of fact, if we want to be precise, we would call it Jesus, the, the third coming, not the second coming, because Jesus already came back the second time. Because he said to Mary, tell them I'm ascending to my father, but I'll come back. He already ascended the second time. What we're looking for at the end of the age is the third time when he comes back. Look with me in John 14 here. Let not your hearts be troubled, verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. How many of you have a different translation there? Instead of rooms, your Bible says something different. Mansions, what else does it say? Dwelling places, okay? Anybody got anything else? Home, all right? Three of those are really good translations. One of them's lousy, all right? Mansions. Nowhere else in the New Testament is this Greek word translated mansions except right here. And yet, it's become such a part of our theology. We sang it this morning in Victory in Jesus. I got, you know, talk about he's going to prepare a mansion for me. I grew up as a kid singing, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. No, you don't. (laughs) Neither do I. That is not what this word is. As a matter of fact, right here in this very chapter, if you go down to verse 23 with me, in verse 23 in, in chapter 14, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Same Greek word translated home. As a matter of fact, nowhere else in the New Testament is this Greek word translated mansion except here. Why? I think it's because those who are translating, we, we get our worldly perspective kind of mixed into some of this. It was, it was the Spirit of God inspiring through human beings. 
And so, there, but every other time, in Revelation 21.3, it says the dwelling of God. Here in verse 23, it says home. We will make home with God. The idea is that in my father's house, where my father is, there is dwelling for many. There is room for many. There's a place prepared so that he wants to be in relationship with you and you can be in relationship with him. And there's room for many. Okay, so it's not, get this picture out of your mind about individual great big mansion, my mansion. I'm, I don't have much down here, but I got a mansion over there. I'm sorry, but no, you don't. And, and here's the good news. When you get there, you won't care. Amen. You won't care because it's all about Jesus. It's not about how big your house is, all right? And so there he is. He's saying, in my father's house are many dwellings, many rooms, many places where he can be in relationship and fellowship with many people. That's already prepared. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. And see, we read that with that mansion idea and think, okay, Jesus is gone for a couple thousand years or however long until he comes back. And what he's doing that whole time, he's building our mansion. All right? He's up there working. He's a carpenter after all. He's up there building. That is not what this passage is saying. Okay? He is not building because it's already built. Notice what he said. In my father's house are already, present tense, are many dwelling places, are many rooms. There's already space for many to come and be in a relationship with my father. But I've got to go make a way so that you can enter in. I've got to go prepare it. He's not talking about a coming at the end of the age. He's talking about what happened on Sunday morning. Resurrection. Keep reading with me. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Now, you said, Troy, does that mean he's not coming? No, he is coming at the end of the age. And he is going to take us back with him. But that's not the interpretation of this verse. He keeps going, and I'll show you. I will come again and take you to where I am. And look with me in verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Notice what Jesus said. He didn't say, I'm going to heaven and making you and building your mansion. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come into those dwelling places that my Father has prepared unless they do it through me. I changed that a little bit, obviously, from exactly how it reads, but that's what Jesus is saying. Nobody can come into that dwelling with the Father unless Jesus makes a way for them to be able to do it. Now, notice verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. So he's saying, you don't know the father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So whatever Jesus is going to do when he goes away and when he comes back, he's going to change things so that before they didn't know the father, but now they will know the father. You see that? All right. We don't have time to go through all this. The next few verses, he's going to talk about what that relationship looks like with the father after he does what he does and how we can ask for things in Jesus' name and the father will give it. He goes through all that. Skip down with me for the sake of time. Skip down to verse 18. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Now, we, again, we've applied this to Jesus coming at the end of the age, at the end of time. And it says, but a little while. And say, so, well, to Jesus, it is a little while. A, a, a day, you know, it's like a thousand years or whatever. No, he told them, a little while. I'm going to be gone for a little while, 
and then I'll be back and you will see me, but the world will not see me. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? He said that Jesus came and showed himself to 500 believers, but not to the world. He wasn't walking all through Jerusalem when he came back for everybody to see him. It says he revealed himself to his apostles, disciples, and about 500 believers who saw him. And then he ascends into heaven. All right, then he goes back after 40 days. Now, keep looking at this with me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's saying, because of what I have done, I have made a way for you to be in a relationship with the Father, but you couldn't be before. Now again, skip with me, just for the sake of time. Skip with me down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. Haven't we heard that before? Verse 1, right? All Verse 1 through 28 are all tied together, folks. They're all the same conversation. He's talking to his disciples, his apostles, and only them. He's saying, I am going to my Father. I'm going to ascend to my Father who has a place already prepared with many dwelling rooms, many places so that you can be in relationship with him and with me. But if I don't go and make a path for you, you cannot enter in. You can't go. You can't be in this relationship. I have to go do that. So I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to come back to you. Now notice what he says in verse 25. There are two characteristics, he says, when he comes back. Do you see them? Two things are going to happen. The Holy Spirit and peace. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And he talks about the Holy Spirit, these two things, okay? Now look at verse 29. Oh, wait a second. Back up with me. Verse 28, you have heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. You'd have been excited about this because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. He said, if you understood what I'm doing for you, you'd be excited about this, not sad. Now look at verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Now let me ask you a question. If this passage is talking about what we have typically called the second coming, when Jesus comes back at the end of the age, does verse 29 make any sense at all? Because he says, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when you see it happen, when you see me go away and come back and you see peace come and the Holy Spirit move, when you see that, you can believe. They won't need that at the end of the age. They've already believed. If this is talking about what we typically call the second coming, then verse 29 makes absolutely no sense. But if he's talking about something else, it makes perfect sense. Now go back with me to John chapter 20. Stay with me. Don't get lost in the weeds here, all right? Stay with me because I'm going to pull all this together. John chapter 20. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, remember the morning of that day, he comes to Mary and says, stop touching me. I have not yet ascended to the Father but I'm going to ascend to him. Go tell my disciples, I am going to my father and their father. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. I love that. The doors were locked, but all of a sudden he's there. He, didn't need, he, just, he was there. 
hidden. I don't, you know, I mean, that's, that's almost like sci-fi. You know, boom, he's just there. Okay. And he's, what did he say to them? Now remember what John 14 said. What did he say to them? Peace be with you. Two characteristics when he said, when I come back, peace and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. You can touch me now. It's okay. I've ascended to my father. I've gone and made a way. You can touch me. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I bet they were. That's an understatement. That may be the biggest understatement in the whole Bible right there. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Remember again, this theme of peace in the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, folks, John 14 was a prediction that Jesus told them, I am going to ascend to my Father and I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I will have made a way for you to have access with the Father and it will be marked by peace and the Holy Spirit. You say, wait a second, what about Pentecost? That's also the Holy Spirit and that's a different part of the story. But Jesus is introducing it to them right here, right now. Now, what really happened on Sunday morning? I'm going to show you two more passages of scripture and then I'm going to tell you what happened on Sunday morning. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse, verse 8. You know what I'm realizing as I'm standing here? I'm going to have to get a Bible with bigger print. Or I could just use my phone, somebody said. <coughs> you all are wicked people. Wicked people. All right. Verse 8. Therefore it says, when he, and who is the he we're talking about here? If you go back a couple verses, you'll see it's Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. When he ascended on high, when did he ascend on high? We're talking about that right now. He led a host of captives. Some of your Bibles say he led captivity captive. But he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now look at verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended? So before he ascended, he descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. All right, Ephesians tells us that before Jesus ascended, and we were reading in John 20 when he ascended, before he ascended, he descended. And when he descended, he came back leading a host of captives with him. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Read you one more and then I'm going to tell you what happened. All right? Revelation chapter 1. Look with me in verse 17. When I saw him, who's the him? Jesus, if we go back a few verses, clearly John says, I saw the Son of Man. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. All right, what happened on Sunday morning? What really happened on Sunday morning? On the night 
before Jesus was crucified, he gathers together with his disciples to have the Passover. We talked about this Friday night. He gathers and he has the Passover meal with them. After 6 o'clock, after 6 p.m., he's eating this meal with them. And they're there for a period of time, lasted a while. And then he leaves. He, by the way, while he's there, all the things that he talks about there in John 14, 15, 16, 17, all of this transpires as Jesus is talking to them just hours before his death. When he tells them that he's going to ascend, but he's going to be gone for a little while, then he's going to come back. He tells them all of this the night before he's crucified. He goes out into the garden and he begins to pray and they couldn't watch when they fall asleep and he comes back and forth and you know that story. And then Judas shows up in the middle of the night with the guard. He's betrayed Jesus and he comes and he brings the guard with him and he kisses him and he betrays him and they take him into custody. And they go and it's still night, it's still the middle of the night and, he, and Jesus begins a series of trials that he's going to go through. Actually six trials are going to take place over the next few hours. And he goes through these trials different people that he has to go to. Ultimately, after it's all said and done, again, before the sun ever comes, or as the sun is just coming up, on the day after Passover, on the first day of unleavened bread, as the scripture says, Jesus is condemned to be crucified. And so they, they take and strip his clothes off of him, they beat him, they scourge him within an inch of his life, literally. Paul talked about being scourged with 39 stripes, with a cat of nine tails, being hit with a cat of nine tails, a cat of nine tails was simply leather straps that had bits of rock and metal sewn or, sewn or woven into them. And they would take and they would whip them with that and it would wrap around and then they would yank it and it literally would rip the flesh off. He was beaten 39 times. The reason why the Romans had decided and discovered that if you do 40, it'll kill them. I can beat them 39 and they'll still live. He was beaten to within an inch of his life and then he's given this big cross beam, the, the beam of the, of the cross, put on his shoulder that probably weighed somewhere between 75 and 125 pounds. All right? Now, he is beaten. He's been up all night. He's exhausted. He's physically been abused. And so it's no wonder that he can barely walk, and he falls, and they have to get Simon of Cyrene, who's standing there along the way, this believer, this, this believer in God, this godly man who has come from Africa to celebrate Passover. He is there, and he is drafted into service to carry the Lord's cross. They take him to Calvary, called, it's called Golgotha, Golgotha, place of the skull. And there they put him on a cross at nine o'clock in the morning. They nail him to a cross and lift him up to the sky at 9 a.m. At, at noon, the scripture says, and he's there for three hours and there's things that take place. At noon, it says that it is dark, that it's like the sun is blackened out and it is dark all over. Jerusalem, all over that area. What is happening there? The scripture doesn't tell us, but I have a theory. Here's what I believe. I believe that all the sins of mankind, past, present, and future, collided on that spot. And on top of that, all the demons and devils of hell also collided on that spot. And the darkness was overwhelming. They thought they had won. They were there to rejoice that God the Father had gone too far in his love and in his love for mankind, he had lost. And what they did not realize is that in his love for mankind, he had won. But they didn't know it. And so at three o'clock, it says, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It says he gave up his spirit and he died at three o'clock in the afternoon before they would break his legs, before the Sabbath began, before the high Sabbath began. This took place. 
They took him off the cross. They put his body into a grave before 6 p.m. His body is in the tomb. His spirit has been given to the Lord. His soul, the person who he is, goes to where Satan is. Because Revelation 1 tells us that he took the keys of death and the grave, death and hell. He goes to Satan and he says, give me the keys. Give me the keys. It's at that moment, as a matter of fact, when Jesus died and the earth quakes, it's at that moment I think that Satan and all the demons of hell realized, "Uh uh-oh, we thought we won, we lost. They had no clue until that moment. And at that moment, Jesus comes, he says, give me the keys. And the scripture says that he set captives, a host of captives, he set them free. Who are they? They're the saints of the Old Testament. There are those who have believed God looking forward to Jesus. Just as we look back to what Jesus did, they were looking forward by faith. But they were in holding, if you will. You say, in hell? No, not necessarily in hell. Scripture calls it Hades. I don't understand all of that. It just says they were in holding. They were in waiting. And he releases them. Oh, by the way, back on the cross before he goes to hell, at that moment that he died, you know what he did? He took and he made a show of the principalities and powers openly, and he triumphed. He grabbed the legal document against you and me and everybody else, the legal document that said that we were guilty, that we were guilty of treason against the creator of the universe, and that we deserved to die. We deserve death. He took that document, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. You can jot it down and read it later. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says, he took on his cross that document, that legal document that stood against us. He nailed it to his cross and covered it in his blood. So there is now no longer a legal standing that Satan has to your life and to my life. He doesn't have it. All right? He goes to hell. He takes the keys of hell and death away from him. And he sets free the captives, those who have believed by faith, who have already passed away. He takes and he leads this host. Because that's what Ephesians tells us. That he comes, he descended, and then he ascended, leading a host of captives with him. Leading them out. And as he's going, he said, hey gang, i got to make one stop on our way out of here. i got to stop by earth and talk to Mary. Okay? While I'm doing that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come out of the tombs. I want you to go into Jerusalem, and I want you to tell people. I want them to see you. I want you to have conversations. I want them to recognize that saints who have fallen asleep are now alive, have been resurrected and are alive. You say, where, where is that? I didn't read that verse to you, did I? Matthew 27. If you want to look at it, you can turn over there. Matthew 27. All right? That is... One of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture. Matthew chapter 27, look with me in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. This is his crucifixion. And he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So yeah, I remember that. From top to bottom. That happened when he died. And the earth shook. And rocks were split. Happened when he died. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Sounds like that all happened when he died, but keep reading. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Jesus comes back, and when he stops and talks to Mary, many of these Old Testament saints, he says, I want you to go walk around Jerusalem. I want people to see you. Why? Why is he doing this? Because they are a testimony that he is the resurrection and the life. That's who he is. 
That's what he is. Oh, but he's not done. He's not done. He, see, he stops and he talks to Mary, and then he continues on because he told him, go tell my disciples I've got to ascend to the Father. So he goes, and he takes these saints along with him. And they get close. Now, heaven, you can't just march into heaven. It's guarded. You have to be allowed access. You can't just go in. You can't just show up without a reservation. And here are all these saints coming. And I believe, again, just my belief, when Psalm 116 talks about, be lifted up, ye ancient gates, be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. I think that's those saints. They're coming up and they're saying, open up. And the angels who are guarding it shout back, who is the King of glory? And they respond, he is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And it opens. And Jesus comes before his Father. He presents himself before the Father. And he says, Father, it is done. It is finished. The plan that we had is finished. Justice has been satisfied. The debt has been paid in full. Now a way has been made so that those many rooms, those many dwellings that you have, Father, now mankind can be reunited with you. They can be in relationship with you and with me. All of this happened on Sunday morning. All of it. I will tell you why it matters. Here's why it matters. Because when Jesus did that, he took Satan and all of his demons, and they are now like a mean old dog with no teeth. That is what they are. That's a picture for you. You can take that one, all right? Satan and all of his demons, they are a mean dog with no teeth. Jesus literally, he pulled all their teeth. You say, well, he's the prince of the power of the air. And one day he's going to be cast in the lake of fire, but right now he's still got power. No, he does not. I didn't read you this verse. Go with me to John 12. Is this all happening? Passion, what they call Passion Week? Oh, man, it's rich. What happened in Passion Week? This is just a couple days before John 14. John 12. Look at this verse. See, we read right over this stuff. John 12. Jesus is talking to them again. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Jesus is talking to them. Father, save me from this hour? He says, is that what I should do? Because he's telling them he's got to die. He's telling them what is going to happen over the next few days. And he said, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now look at verse 31. Because I think sometimes we read verse 30 and we miss 31 because we're so excited about 30 and God's speaking in this voice from heaven. Look at 31, what Jesus said. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Not 2,000 years from now, not 3,000 years from now, not at the end of the age. Now, right now, 
He's being, the world is being judged, and the ruler of this world is being cast out. Now, he may still roam in this territory, but he has no authority. He has no dominion. He has none whatsoever. You say, Pastor, he sure feels like he has authority. The only authority that the enemy has in a believer's life, in your life and in my life, is the authority that we give him. That is the only authority he has. He has no other. Why does he tempt you and me? Why does he tempt us to sin? Why does he tempt us to believe lies? Because it's the only way he has any authority. Because it was all taken away from him. You need to understand that you must believe this. Jesus rising from the dead didn't just save us so that one day we could go to heaven. Jesus rising from the dead allowed Satan, actually actively took and defeated Satan and took away his authority and his power so that you and I no longer have to be in, we don't have to be governed. We don't have to be dominated by Satan. We don't have to be dominated by sin. He said that freedom Christ has been freedom for freedom. Christ has set you free. He did that on Sunday morning. He did that when he rose from the dead. When he went to hell, when he took the keys, when he took that ordinance that was against us in Colossians 2, when he rose, when he ascended to his father, and he said, It is done, Father. I have completed it. It's all done. And then he returns back to his disciples and says, It's all done. It's all done. It's all finished. You're sitting there and you're quiet. You know why you're quiet? Because the enemy has lied to you, and he's lied to me, and for too long we have believed him. You know why we sing and celebrate? Not just this Sunday, every Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But this one's very special. Once a year we do this. Because the one who once had legal right and claim to me no longer does. He no longer does. You say, what do I do with this? I'll tell you what you do with this week. Is that you go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he lies to you, you remind him he's a liar. And he's a, he's a mean dog with no teeth. He has no teeth. He can bark at you. He'll try to make you afraid. He will cause you to, he'll want to cause you to believe what is not true. But he has no authority, none whatsoever. Jesus did all of that on the cross. And because he rose, not just because he died, because many have died. All will die eventually except those who are living when he returns. And those who didn't see death. Jesus dying isn't the key. It was the fact that he died and he rose again. It's the resurrection. I want you to bow your heads with me. Do you know Jesus this morning? Are you in relationship? When he said to his disciples, and by implication to you and me, he said, I'm going to the Father, so from this point forward, you can be, as the Father and I are one, you and the Father will be one, and you and I will be one. We will be together in all of this. Are you in relationship with him today? Do you know him? If not, I want you to understand, that's exactly what Jesus, what he died and he rose again. He made a way 
Can I tell you something? That Jesus has already done everything he's going to do concerning sin. He paid for it all. Past, present, future. Once for all. He's already done it. And you say, well, does that mean I'm just automatically in? No. You must receive it by faith. It doesn't just automatically happen. You must receive it. Have you received it? That song we sang this morning, will you believe it? Will you receive it? When is the day of salvation for you? Today. Today's the day. You say, well, maybe later. You're not guaranteed later. I'm not guaranteed later. Today is the day of salvation. Before we leave today, we'll have prayer partners up here at the front. If you don't know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus, would you come grab one of them by the hand and say, hey, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have a relationship with Jesus. Could you help me? Would you pray with me? Because I'm just not sure. It'd be our privilege to be able to help you. Because Jesus made a way. He paid the price for you. Just like he did for me. And one day, years ago, he opened my eyes by his spirit to see it and to believe it and receive it. Today is your day. What if you are a believer today? Do you really believe that Satan was defeated on that Sunday? He was defeated. He does not have authority. He has no legal claim on you. He does not have dominion over you unless you give it to him. That's the reason in Ephesians, Scripture says, don't give place. Don't yield territory to the devil that doesn't belong to him. Don't believe his lies. You don't have to live that way. I don't have to live that way. Now, do I sin? Yeah, I still do. Do you? Yeah, probably so. I want to tell you, the power of the resurrection, I don't have to believe lies. I don't have to live in sin. I don't have to. I may choose to at times. I may even be deceived at times. But I don't have to live there, and neither do you. This is the power of the resurrection. This is what really happened on that Sunday morning. It is good news, folks. It is good news. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you today, would you cause each one of us to hear you speak? To hear your voice. For those here today, Lord, that don't know you, may they hear you calling. You're calling out, saying, come, believe, believe on me, and you will have eternal life. Believe. Believe it and receive it. Oh, Lord, pour out your grace right now. That no heart would be distracted or hardened. Every heart open to what you would say. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who know you and we're in relationship with you, but we live as those 
Satan still has his teeth. We live as though he still has control. He has authority. He has none. You took it from him. That is the good news. And I don't have to live that way. We don't have to live that way anymore. What shall we say? Shall sin have dominion over us that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? I don't have to live that way. We don't have to live that way, Jesus. We praise you and we thank you for what you did. And we believe it and receive it. And in every part of our life, today, tomorrow, this week, to come back to this place, to be able, Lord, to recognize the lie. Would you help us by your spirit? Recognize the lie. Lord, would we hear your voice and receive the truth, casting down the lie, walking in resurrection power. It is ours. It is our birthright. It is ours. You paid the highest price so that we could have it. And Lord, today we claim it in every area. Folks, I'm telling you, you don't have to be trapped by worry anymore. You do not have to be in bondage to fear. You do not have to be in chains to lust. You don't have to be in guilt and shame over past mistakes. You don't have to live in condemnation over current relationships. You don't have to. Jesus rose from the dead and he conquered all of that. I simply believe it, receive it, and walk in it. Would you do that today? And every day, every moment of every day. That's why we gather together. We don't just come because it's ritual. We don't just come because it seems like a neat thing to do or it'll make God happy. We'll get a few brownie points. We gather together as believers to keep reminding one another of what he has done for us. Because the enemy lies and we forget. So today, Lord Jesus, we remember, we believe, and we receive. And we pray that you would receive glory in the believing. In Jesus' precious name that we pray.